Welcome to Hammerama. I'm Steven, and I can't wait to unravel my thoughts about this wonderful movie. And I'm Al from New Zealand, who prefers invoking magic coffee beans rather than the scroll of life when trying to reanimate myself. We are Hammerama, a podcast originating from either point of the sun god Ra's journey across the sky, crossing time zones to become bandaged together in the ancient ritual of editing. Our opening track was the intro to the amazing House of the Gorgon by the equally amazing Reba Clark. Hammerama is part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, and as such, the subject of our movie's discussions have been decided by the cast of a die. Steve unwrapped a three, which is Hammer's mummy cycle. So we went back 4,000 years, or seven decades at least, to excavate the first and best of them. The Mummy from 1959, starring Cushing, Lee, and Michael Ripper. Egypt, 4,000 years ago. A land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, the Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. who robs the graves of Egypt dies. Charis, an ancient Egyptian high priest, played by Englishman Christopher Lee, is devastated when his princess and secret lover, Princess Ananka, played by French woman Yvonne Furneaux, unexpectedly dies. Caught blaspheming in his attempt to resurrect her by reading from the Scroll of Life, Carice is bandaged and buried alive with an anchor in her tomb. 4,000 years later, Carice is accidentally revived and comes under the influence of a modern Egyptian acolyte of Karnak called Mehemet Bey, played by Cypriot actor George Pastel. Bay sets the mummy on the Banning family for their desecration of Ananka's tomb, which it carries out with ruthless and violent efficiency, until Carice encounters Isabel Banning, the image of his lost princess. Will the mummy give up his murdering ways and resume his 4,000-year relationship? Can the wrath of the ancient gods of Egypt ever be appeased? Will actual Egyptian actors ever appear in a mummy film? 
and can John Banning and Inspector Mulrooney survive long enough to appear in Star Wars together? They just came out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Sorry. <laughs> so, Stephen, what are your initial thoughts about this movie? Oh, my initial thoughts. I've seen this movie several times before and also with um, my son, Ben, who's watched it. And we both believe that that of the, the mummy movies, that this is the best one between Universal and Hammer. Like We like this one the best. I will say, though, he likes the uh, Frasier, the mummy better of all of them Mm -hmm. because he likes the comedy and that kind of stuff. I like this one the best also, mainly because of Cushing and Lee, which we've kind of talked about before when we talked about Dracula. Mm. And uh, I just love Lee's suit acting because he does so much with his body language and his eyes that it's just amazing, you know, how he's able to get across those emotions when he's about to get buried, you know, or sealed in the tomb so to speak, when he sees his long-lost love for the first time after 4,000 years. Uh, it's just amazing how much he can get out of that. And the costuming for him is so much, it's so good. I just love how the, the special effects did the work on it. And the reason I also like this movie better than the Universal Mummy movie, and I love the Universal Mummy movie, but it, the reason I like this one better is because you have more of the mummy, the wrapped version, where in the Universal one, he's, a minute or so, you have the wrapped version, and then after that, Boris Karloff is unwrapped um, for the rest of the film. And I love that film also, but this one, I think, because if you're looking for the mummy, you're wanting to see, in my opinion, the wrapped version. And also, unlike other mummy movies where it's slow and stumbling, this one moves stiffly at first when he gets re- reanimated, but then he has that power and that drive of that Lee brings to his roles, that physicality that I just love. And he's got that mean left grab, you know, that pincer-like grip, especially around certain people's necks. <laughs> and Peter Cushing is John Banning. I mean, what, so much has been said about Peter Cushing's acting, and he's just amazing in, in just about every role he's in. I've yet to see a bad performance by either one of these gentlemen. He just owns it because he starts off with the broken leg and he then he continues on with the limp through the film because he has that drive where he didn't want to get his leg set. And the way he's able to carry that charisma with Yvonne Ferrino, Isabel Banning as his wife and how they're equal, but eventually he has to say one thing like, I've never ordered you to do anything, but I want you to do this for your safety. Uh, not knowing that he's sending away the only thing that would save him because of her being an exact lookalike for Princess Anaka. So it's just... I just love it. I love them both. And George Pastel is the villain. Because to me, the mummy is not the villain. The Met Bay is the villain. And I just I just love that fanatical devotion and drive for his religious belief. And that scene between him and Peter Cushing, where Peter Cushing knows that he's saying stuff to get under his skin. And oh, that was that was just a great scene. I mean, it's just you talk about two actors bringing it at that time. I just I just love that scene. Those are my initial impressions. Uh, what about you, Al? This verbal confrontation was so very nearly my pick for a favourite scene. And in fact, I waxed lyrical about it on another podcast, which you and I both love very much. So by kind permission of Chad Hunt, comic book artist and tagline performer extraordinaire, here is an excerpt of him reading my feedback on an episode of the magnificent Decades of Horror, the Classic Era podcast. Wonderful also to see Peter Cushing busting out some parkour when Karis first pays him a visit. 
And although I couldn't quite <laughs> shake the suspicion that the character of John Banning needed to be played by a younger man, it's also difficult to imagine anyone else in the passive-aggressive showdown he shares with George Pastel as Mohammed Bey. It's a classic Cushing performance of steely resolve glinting beneath an icy formal veneer. Decades of Horror, the classic era, is essential listening for any old-school horror fans and a great inspiration to Steve and I. In fact, we have a crossover of a kind planned for a future Hammerama episode. But as far as my initial thoughts are concerned, with advances in makeup and effects, much has been made of a mummy's decrepitude in recent films, you know, like the Brendan Fraser films, which you mentioned before withered, decaying, even from Tom Tyler and Lon Chaney Jr.'s Carice, it moved slowly while dragging its leg behind it. Christopher Lee's Carice is not that mummy. He's a relentless force who is right on top of you before you even realise what's happening, and no amount of heavy wooden doors, metal bars or even gunfire is going to keep him away. More unstoppable than the Frankenstein creature more brutal than Dracula, this is the peak of Lee's physical menace in any role. And I think the clue that defines Lee's mummy as being different to all those who came before or since is in Mehemet Bey's incantation when he revives Carice from the swamp. And he says, Make supple the limbs and strong the sinews, that he might walk again in the land of Kem in all thy strength. So this implies to me that the mummy isn't just a resurrected corpse, but he's on steroids. And looking at Lee with his very tall silhouette, bulked up by the bandages wrapped around his limbs, you can believe that this isn't merely a revived Egyptian corpse, but the undead embodiment of an Egyptian god and the relentless instrument of supernatural vengeance. So in other words, this isn't just a bandaged zombie coming after you. This is the supernatural embodiment of all the rage and wrath of ancient Egypt. And uh, Lee pulls that off perfectly. Oh, I definitely agree. And also it shows the strength when he goes through those bars to get to his Mm -hmm. first victim and Stephen Banning. And he's just pulling them off, and you it's and then going through the cage. It's it's like nothing's going to stop. He's an unstoppable force of the supernatural. So that sort of brings us to our favorite part, which I don't know. I'm just guessing, but you might have already alluded to. Well, I have two favorite parts. One of them I already mentioned, yeah. and I think I've talked a lot about it already with the mm-hmm. with John Banning and um, Manette Bay talking to each other and having that great acting going between the two but i also love the effects and i think the effects of the gunshots with the bandages just popping off where the gunshots are supposed to be mm-hmm. hitting and knowing that those are practical effects and how they did the, the harpoon through the mummy and, and just such a, a great gag uh, it's just it's just amazing the creativity that they were able to pull off to where it's like movie magic where it just looked like it went straight through and impaled him or the gunshots are going through yeah. him or just stopping inside of his body and having no effect on him. And it's just causing his body to move, mm-hmm. but has zero mm-hmm. effect. And it's just the only, the only thing that could stop him is love. What, what's your favorite part? 
Well, <laughs> this is interesting because I said that the confrontation between Mehemet Bey and uh, John Banning was the most obvious. So I deliberately didn't go with that. And I went with the exact same scene <laughs> that you have. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm going at it from a different perspective. So I think I think we might be okay here. I usually go for the quieter scenes. I usually go for the performances. But this time I'm going more Michael Bay than Mehemet Bay. And I want to talk about an action highlight, which is Carice's first shocking attack on John Banning, which you've just mentioned. This is probably one of the greatest action scenes in any Hammer film. It begins with the mummy's shadow looming against the curtains. And then there's the sudden explosion of glass as he bursts into the room, shrugging off the shotgun blasts, which you've just mentioned, and lunging for Cushing as he parkours his way over the table and up onto the wall to grab the harpoon, then smoothly turning the desperate evasion into a downward thrust of the weapon right through the mummy's desiccated body, only to end up pinned helplessly to the desk by a single bandaged hand. This is incredible choreography. Effects, as you've mentioned, and camera work, all brought together perfectly by Terence Fisher, and largely inspired once again by Cushing, wanting to justify the poster image, which we will talk about later. So once again, this is a physical confrontation which is improved by Cushing's input. The other example I'm thinking of, of course, is the climax to the horror of Dracula, where very famously he suggested the run along the table and the leap for the curtains. Here, the suggestion has made this an absolute standout scene. Such a standout scene, in fact, that you and I have both picked it as our favourite. Well, what can you say? I think great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> or fools never differ <laughs> <laughs> I, I like my version better <laughs> yeah i think i do too right i'm going to go on to the reviews everyone should be used to this section by now but i will just quickly outline what the point of it is basically i take a review from the same year that the film was released and i contrast that with as recent a review as i can possibly find so in august 1959 the pittsburgh Post-Gazette wrote, Despite an excessive amount of hocus-pocus, including a delightfully bloody but much too long entombing ceremony, Jimmy Sangster's screenplay is both suspenseful and highly entertaining. The colour photography does much to give this English production fine polish. Miss Yvonne Furneaux also adds a welcome touch of beauty. So this kind of makes me wonder if this reviewer might have seen the uncut version with Carice's severed tongue held up in shot. Anyway, in 2012, Time Out magazine wrote, one of the most fetching of Fisher's early Hammer movies, the third in the trilogy that comprises The Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula. Its qualities are almost entirely abstract and visual, with colour essential to its muted, subtle imagery. Christopher Lee looks tremendous in the title role, smashing his way through doorways and erupting from green, dreamlike quagmires in really awe-inspiring fashion. Yvonne Furneaux plays one of Fisher's most crucial heroines, Isabel Banning, who has let her hair down, literally, and become sensual in order to free her husband, 
Cushing from the curse he invokes by opening an Egyptian tomb. In both those reviews, it's nice to see some love for Isabel Banning, who, at least in my reading, is usually pretty much dismissed as an underwritten character. But here we have two reviews which actually highlight her. So I think that's great. I agree with those reviews because I find, yes, she does pass out at one time near the end and gets carried off by the mummy, but she saves herself. With this, yeah. From the suggestion from John Banning and is able, and also she saves her husband not once, but twice. And mm. the first time by accident, the yeah. second time knowing. That's and true. That kind of stuff. So I, I think I agree with those reviews that she, um, not the main focus of the movie, but it is a very important focus, especially for 1959. You're I'm right. It's actually making me rethink her character. And in fact, I've got I've got more to say about her a bit later on. We've actually come to the connections section, but you told me, Stephen, that you've got a contribution to make here. Yes, it's it, one of those um couple degrees like of Kevin Bacon or whatever we can go with, and that Stephen Banning, played by Felix Almer, is also in one of my favorite movies from Hammer. Probably my favorite one right now. I haven't, I haven't seen all the Hammer movies that you have and a lot of people that might be listening to this have, but Never Take Sweets from a Stranger is to me the best, so far, the best Hammer movie I've ever seen. And he is the villain in it and does an excellent job. And the connection, of course, is from the interview I did with Yanina Faye. And that's also her favorite Hammer movie. I think it's her favorite movie overall. Not just Hammer, but her favorite movie that she's ever done. His work in both of these shows you the difference that he can bring. He has so much difference in acting styles because here he's dad, the father figure, and the other one, he is a despicable father figure and totally villainous. And I know you've never seen Never Take Sweets from a Stranger, but one day hopefully we'll review it for this and it'll be one of the very few times, maybe the only time, where I've seen the movie prior to you for the review. <laughs> 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 yes, um, I, I know I know it has an amazing reputation. And just listening to what you've just said, it's, it's obviously one that I absolutely must track down. Thanks for that, Stephen, because my own contribution to this section is once again in danger of making it the disconnections. Because although Carice is clearly in possession of the scroll of life when we last see him sinking beneath the swamp, he was never to resurface. And Hammer's next three mummy films are all standalone with no connection to this one at all. So I'm just going to offer an observation instead. The image of Christopher Lee, risen from the dead, wrapped neck to foot in bandages and bringing his mime skills to bear through the deceased tissue of an excellent makeup is iconic and unforgettable. Rampaging through Bray House, dressed to represent a stately home from a past century, he grabs Peter Cushing's aristocratic character by the throat, throttling him with unnatural strength and allowing Cushing to employ his signature protruding tongue gag before being rescued by the last-minute intervention of a caring ally. But I'm not describing a scene from The Mummy. Or at least not just from The Mummy. This is actually from Lee's first ever Hammer film appearance in 1957's The Curse of Frankenstein. 
So I'm wondering if there was a strong feeling of deja vu for the actors and the director when they came to film The Mummy, and perhaps this exact replay of his on-screen debut only two years previously helped persuade Lee that maybe he needed to distance himself from monstrous roles for a while. It's hard to say, you know, because I think he chose wisely to get out of the makeup, you know, because of Frankenstein, and especially with The Mummy, I mean... Except when he's playing the high priest, you don't see him at all. And you don't get to hear his great, wonderful voice, which again, just shows how much of his acting range is because he has a great instrument there of his vocal powers. And, but yet he's also able to utilize his body and eyes, like we talked about earlier, so well. You're talking about two actors that are always bringing their, they're always at the top of their game, especially this, this time frame being put together is just wonderful. Mm-hmm in a more frivolous way I remember the first time I ever saw a picture of, of Lee as the Frankenstein creature at that stage the only Frankenstein's monster I knew was of course Boris Karloff and I saw this picture of Lee bandaged as I've said from neck to foot and I thought that's not that's not Frankenstein's monster that's the mummy so I just couldn't help but draw the comparisons between those two really arresting looks that that uh, that both involve bandages so we're on to the merchandise section. You've sent me a picture of yours, Stephen. Yes, I did. And, and listeners, this time, instead of me make, having trouble finding a merchandise connection and making up what I hope would come out, there's actually one out there <laughs> I want to get. <laughs> and that's the, the, you know, I still want those quater mass quarters. <laughs> but now, oh, you're never going to top that the one. The Mago Hammer Mommy 8-inch action figure is out there. And... I sent Alistair some pictures of it, and it is just, I saw it, I was like, this is wonderful, and it's available at a lot of different sites for pre-order for less than $20. I'm not, in America, I'm not sure what the pricing would be in other countries. And But there is a version out there I saw on eBay where people are charging $40, $60, so there must have been a limited edition version that came out prior, mm. and which is way more expensive. I personally don't need to have a limited edition one. I saw this one. It looks very good, and it's 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 much more affordable. <laughs> it's nice to have that full body where you can have you can pose it in different things. Get the left arm out like you want to choke somebody. Maybe you get another action figure there so you can take somebody down with the one hand grab. His go to move. <laughs> what did you think of the sculpt and the paint job that they did on the figures? I um, know that Mego goes for a certain look, that they aren't necessarily wanting to be completely accurate. But from what I saw, what you sent me this morning, it really looks damn good. There must be something about this particular character that just loans itself to, to Amigo's skull. And it's got the bullet holes. Has it really? Wow. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, what's yours, Al? Well, mine's not nearly as much fun as yours, and um, it's extremely obvious, but uh, Franz Reisenstein's score for The Mummy, conducted by John Hollingsworth, is one of my all-time favorite Hammer soundtracks, if not the favorite. Not only does it perfectly evoke ancient Egypt, but it has some distinctly John Williams-esque sort of adventure motifs and an unforgettable main theme. In fact, I have a documentary, a radio documentary about Hammer themes, and they use the mummy as its own theme, which I think when you've got all those uh, wonderful film scores to choose from, that, that really says something. But I'm not going to go on about it except to say that it's brilliant. It's available on Apple Music and other online services. And Christopher Lee likes it too. 
This is Christopher Lee. The Mummy, made by Hammer Films, in my opinion, is one of the best films of its kind that British cinema has made. I think it's the most beautiful looking film that Hammer ever made. More importantly, I think the music of The Mummy is greatly superior to all the other music in any other Hammer film. That's saying a great deal because there was some wonderful music in many of the Hammer films. But I repeat, the best looking picture with the best music and certainly one of the best films. I know that you will all enjoy listening to this music as much as we all enjoyed making the film. But I also want to mention an item of merchandise which I am going to produce myself. I was fortunate enough to visit Egypt back in 1991, and among many other things, I bought a blank sheet of genuine papyrus. And I'd always intended to use it for an appropriate illustration, but nothing ever came to mind. Until three decades later, I finally decided. So what I'm going to do is adapt page 37 from my book Infogothic, an unauthorised graphic guide to Hammer Horror, which shows screen mummies from Hammer and Universal in hieroglyphic form. So I'll be adding foreign film and comic book mummies as well, and this new artwork will be printed directly onto the papyrus. From that point, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it, but watch this space. I can now say... I know now what I want for my merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I just wish that, I, that I'd bought more than one sheet of papyrus back with me, but uh, hopefully there's not an ancient curse attached if to it. If that's the case, you can keep it. <laughs> 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 that's very noble of you, Stephen. <laughs> Throw me under the ancient Egyptian bus. So speaking of artwork, shall we talk about the poster? I think we shall. You want to go first this time? Yeah, 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 sure. As I think we discussed at one point, there aren't a lot of variations available on this poster, but there's plenty of interpretations of the image, which they actually appear to have nailed the first time. We've chosen the US version, which I think is a more finished illustration than the more sketchy British original by Bill Wiggins. So hopefully you'll be able to see this image on our Facebook post, and some of you may even own the book. The Art of Hammer, where you can compare them side by side. Now, if you do this, Carice on the American poster somehow looks more aggressive and threatening. And I think this is down to the US artist skillfully employing perspective, lowering our eye line so that we are looking up at the looming mummy striding out of the mist. It's a really simple trick, but if it's done properly, it's really effective. So a Google search or look through this book will reveal that the foreground woman dress appears in just about every hue imaginable across all the different versions of this poster. Reds, yellows, blues, purples, depending upon how the particular artist feels on the day. But let's talk about the most controversial aspect. Why does the mummy have a film projection window in the middle of his body, allowing the pursuing policeman to screen his holiday slides? I originally imagined that it implied that the mummy was a supernatural and not fully corporeal being, but I now see that it could even be caused by the shotgun blast behind him. 
bullets and light beam just happening to hit the mummy in exactly the same spot at the same time, which would be very messy for the poor woman in front of him. Cushing had his own solution, of course, but none of these explanations really work. So let's just accept it as a striking and imaginative image which has endured the decades. What do you think about it, Stephen? One of the things I was going to point out, you pointed out with the, the dress being different colors in virtually every poster, which I find yeah. kind of interesting. I guess it's whatever floats your boat, that's the color it's going to be that, that given run. Because I have four different pictures of this poster and every, every one of them is a different color. <laughs> what I find great, the muted coloring, even with the little pictures, the, the sequential art type pictures that are on the mm. right side of the poster. Because nothing is it's colored, but it's, it's more of that same style that the main poster has because that would be yeah. jarring to see yeah. bright green or bright yellow popping out of there being a comic book fan i love it how they did the sequential art different sequences to help people get an idea in the movie and they have the one scene there with peter cushing and the uh, harpoon type thing going through the mummy's chest so if people are wondering where did the hole come from they can actually puzzle <laughs> it together from this poster as Peter Cushing did himself. British version, which has none of those on the other side. I enjoy it just because it's, it's, it's just so weird. It shows you it's an undead entity with the light beam going right through his chest. And it's still the mummy moves forward. It's, yeah. it's like, it, it gives the attention that can it be stopped? Can it, there's obviously a hole in its chest and it keeps coming and coming. Can anything stop this supernatural force from fulfilling its mission? I mentioned to you before we started recording that I found another version of this poster. The French poster uses the mummy and the woman, more or less in exactly the same pose. But this time, rather than out on the moors, the mummy is climbing through the window of the asylum. And you can see that the bars are bent away from the window. The mummy's climbing through and for whatever reason, the woman is now inside the cell. So it's using those elements, those almost exactly the same elements, but in a completely different environment. But what really pops about this particular version is the colours that have been used. There's deep, deep blues and purples. It's almost a sort of ultraviolet sort of colour scheme. And... Um, absolutely beautiful but it just really fascinates me that um that the mummy's original painting has barely been adjusted in all of the many 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 versions of this uh, of this poster that we've seen so final thoughts Stephen. we're there already what would you like to say about this film in conclusion well, as i said already i think it's the best version of the mummy for being taking it more as, as a serious approach you know, the Brandon Fraser one is to me more of um, a less serious, a more action movie with comedy elements thrown in. But I think if you're looking at the horrific elements as a horror type genre, this mummy, I think, is the superior one because you really are terrified that this is going to come through and get you. Mm -hmm. And the, the yeah. mummy from the Universal one, I, I enjoy also, but I don't look at that one as much as being as, as a horror film as an adventure drama because it's, it doesn't scare me at any point but you're just drawn in by the acting and this one i'm drawn in by the acting but i'm also especially when i was younger and i saw it scared of it you know and i think that's what a horror film to me looks at so I, to me it's it's hard to compare those two with the horror as they are nowadays or at least in 1959 and later in the 40s and so on up to the current day 
And I'm not even going to talk about the Tom Cruise one. Yes. Just, just say it. <laughs> but I, but I, just, I just enjoyed this movie so much with the color. And, and the one thing I didn't mention was when they're showing the tomb, I love the green lighting the, that they're throwing in, you know, to give it that mood atmosphere. And that's, that's the other thing I wanted to mention with the cinematography of Jack Asher done with Ter- Terrence Fisher. As you mentioned earlier, there are so many things that they've done so yes. well together. And I really enjoy that, that marriage of those two putting this film together. There's a similar sort of green light shining on the swamp as the mummy emerges. And I, and I used to think, well, that's utterly pointless. That light source couldn't be coming from anywhere at all. But with you mentioning it also appearing in the tomb, I wonder if it's sort of indicating a supernatural presence, if it's maybe suggesting the ancient power of the Egyptian gods being reawoken, in which case, yeah, it, it works extremely well. Now I'm going to go from your classy observation to the opposite. I've always heard and read that there have been scenes cut from this film. And one of them I have already mentioned, and that is that apparently Carice's severed tongue is held up to the camera in the ancient Egyptian scenes. One of the other sequences uh, from this flashback apparently involved some partial nudity. Apparently the Egyptian maidens were filmed topless in one version of the funeral procession, which obviously wasn't used. And I always thought this was interesting because basically everyone in the know confirms it, but I had never, ever seen any stills or or any images, which I thought was quite unusual given how many books and so on there are about Hammer films. Well, anyway, I was doing a little bit of research for our podcast and I came across, I believe it's a French magazine, which printed a sort of photo novel version of the mummy. And one of the images does actually show this cut sequence where some of the Egyptian maidens do appear to be topless. But what was even more interesting to me is that I discovered a magazine that I have owned since the age of 10 actually reproduced this photo novel in its pages, and it has that exact same image. So all these years, I've actually had a visual confirmation of this cutscene and didn't even realize it. It also amuses me to think what my 10-year-old self, how excited my 10-year-old self would have been if I'd looked just a little bit more closely at this, uh, at this particular image in my magazine. So anyway, moving on. Even Jimmy Sangster has said that there's really only one basic mummy story and that everything else is just variations of it, which I think is why this film is a compendium of just about every universal mummy film, cherry-picking elements from each one. But I did notice something new in this last viewing, as should be the case with every great film, and that is that we are given to believe that Isabel Banning merely happens to physically resemble Ananka, and that there is nothing any more substantial in this trope of reincarnation, established in the original Mummy and so often used in other films. But it also struck me that Isabel never actually seems to be afraid of Carice. Her reaction to him is generally controlled and composed, which is a refreshing change for a horror film heroine. She behaves regally, in fact, like a princess. 
Even while being carried into the swamp to face a potential terrible fate, she remains calm and speaks to Carice with gentleness. It's never directly addressed, but perhaps Isabel did know the former high priest in a previous life, and is fully aware of exactly who and what she is dealing with here. And I like to think so because that gives Yvonne Furneaux's character far more agency and dimension than she is ever credited with. Just a stray thought, but next time you watch the film, just watch her. Another excellent Hammer Films podcast gave this film a very poor review a few years ago in their Mummy episode. And as much as I respect them, I called them out then and I'm calling them out again now. The Mummy is the third jewel in the crown of Hammer's original triumvirate of horrors and more than deserves to proudly stand shoulder to shoulder with the Count and the creature. So if you only ever see one Mummy film in your life, see this one. Because not only is it comprised of just about every other Mummy film you could see, but it's also the very best. Uh, I agree with you. And a lot of the stuff you said there, I, I mentioned earlier with her character having more than people really initially think. She's not a scream queen. Yeah, but just before we wrap this all up, we have some very welcome feedback from the very generous Rich Chamberlain of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Steve and Alistair, this is Richard the Monster Movie Kid calling in once again with some thoughts and ramblings on Hammerama. What a fantastic podcast. You guys are knocking it out of the park with each and every episode. And I'm loving it. It's getting bumped to the top of my podcast listening schedule, I guess. You know, I'm so far behind on my podcasting. Every time I get ahead, then Steve drops another five interviews and I guess get farther and farther behind. But Hammerama is always uh, getting bumped up to the top. And I wanted to comment on your recent episodes. Quatermass in the Pit. I'm not as big a fan of that one as you guys are, but... It's something that I'm going to continue to revisit and maybe I'll warm up to it. I much rather prefer the first two films in the trilogy, but that's not to say I don't appreciate it. It's just not my favorite. However, I loved the talk about Doctor Who and yes, totally digging and seeing the references with early to mid-70s Doctor Who. That's a sweet spot for me. I didn't become a Doctor Who fan until 83 so I, by the time I saw the Pertwee years and the first couple of years of, of Tom Baker, um, I guess like the first three or four seasons of Tom Baker, it was the 1980s. And of course, so many other people had seen Doctor Who by that point. I was kind of late to the party. But that's my favorite era. I love the John Pertwee era and those early years of, of Baker. Like I said, the first four seasons of Baker are a sweet spot. Stuff like the horror of Fang Rock, you know, and the image of the Fendal, which I think uh, you mentioned. Yeah, definitely hammer feels to me. So, yeah, I love that conversation. And you've got a, a fellow Doctor Who fan here in Kansas City. Uh, One Million Years B.C. I really can't comment too much on this because I've never seen this movie. Um a lot of the caveman movies have kind of passed me by, and for one reason or another, I never really saw them. And this is a movie that's been on my list to see for quite a while, and listening to your show, really, I got to bump it to the to the top of my to-watch list, which is also quite long and, and overwhelming at times, but... Um, 
definitely want to check it out for a lot of reasons. And, uh, uh, yeah, maybe Raquel Welch is one of them. You know, I don't know. I have no excuse why I haven't seen it up to this point. Um, Dr. Jekyll Sister Hyde. Yep, another Hammer film that's not necessarily at the top of my list. Loved your conversation about it. Um, this is a movie that I watched a while ago for our podcast, and I think it was the first time, maybe the second time viewing for me on that. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that uh, I'll revisit again in the future, and maybe I'll appreciate it a little bit more. But again, I don't really have to love the movies as much as you do because your show is so good and the conversation is beyond entertaining. Now, your next movie, The Mummy. Okay, that's one of my all-time favorite Hammer films. And I think it's my favorite in regards to the soundtrack. The music in The Mummy is just amazing. So I'm really looking forward to your conversation. Hopefully you'll talk about the music a little bit because that's definitely one of my sweet spots for Hammer. Thanks so much for that, Rich. Steve and I always enjoy hearing your views on the films that we discuss and also what you think of our show itself, of course. Glad you enjoyed the Quatermass episode. As we said, there's a flavour of Bernard Quatermass for everybody. And we're really looking forward to hearing more from you on the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I have a question for you, Al. Yes, Steve. What movie do you think we're going to do next? Well... This is all chance, of course. I'm going to roll the die. For people that don't know, we have six categories. Number one is mm -hmm. Dracula. Number two is Frankenstein. Number three is The Mummy, as we just did. The yeah. number four is Science Fiction. Number five, Prehistoric. And number six, The 70s. Oh, I love the experimental 70s. So I'm going to roll the die and see what we come up with. Two. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Or, as Peter Cushing says, Frankenstein. This is the category I was hoping we would hit because it's the one that we haven't covered yet. And if you're in agreement, we will get the chance to cover the third great jewel in the crown of Hammer, original Hammer, which I just alluded to before, and that is The Curse of Frankenstein. Well, I definitely agree. For listeners wondering, when we started this podcast, Al and I both talked about Dracula and Frankenstein as a series, how we should cover it. Should we go random or whatever? And I, I said for both of them, because there is a loose continuity from film to film, depending on which series, somewhat more looser from one film to another. But Frankenstein, I think, has the most mm -hmm. continuity, so to speak, from movie to movie that the best way to do it would be go in order. So that way we can always refer back to films that we talked about prior instead of saying, well, in this other film, which we haven't gotten to yet. So I think for logistics sake, for these two series, if you're wondering when we hit them in the die roll, they will go in chronological order as they came out. Excellent. Stephen, you've actually made it sound as if we know what we're doing. So I'll take that. We do know sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Everyone, we've reached the end of this episode. We really hope that you enjoyed it. We certainly did. Anything else to say before we sign off, Stephen? I'm looking forward to it because it's, again, the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, a movie I've seen before, you've seen multiple times. Um, can't wait to see it. And then as we go through the rest of those series, the Dracula series, the Frankenstein series, and the other Mummy movies, how do they compare with the ones that started the series, so to speak, and how they keep holding up. So I can't wait. 
Definitely, definitely. Can't wait. I'm, I'm actually pulling that Blu-ray off the shelf as we speak. So, everyone, please join us in a month's time for the whole reason that we're still talking about Hammer in 2022. The patient zero of their gothic horror revolution, which swept the world back in 1957 and is still so beloved today. Scrub up for some exploratory surgery as we examine the curse of Frankenstein. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. 